short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. In 1949, he now has the power to dissolve both chambers, and if you don't like it, he'll dissolve your body in a vat of acid, <laughs> call right. new elections, and he gets to appoint the prime minister. But yes. by he, I mean the British, who are his <laughs> ultimate puppet masters in right. 1949. He yeah. knew, they knew, and the people knew, and the Russians knew yeah. that he ran the country only at the... Uh, Bless, with the blessing of the British. He served yes, at their pleasure. Exactly. As his father had done and was removed at their pleasure. Uh, and the current Prime Minister, Farugi, also serves at the pleasure. He's pro-British. Right. When violent riots broke out over the British oil refinery in Abadan in 1946 over mm -hmm. working conditions and the fact that most of the money was going offshore, <laughs> right. the British told... Reza Shah, what he had to do, Muhammad Reza. We, we, I can't, I'm sick of saying, mate. Let's call him Kid Shah. Kid they Shah. told Kid Shah yeah. what he needed to do. Yeah. Riots broke out in Abadan, and this led many Iranians to rally to the workers' cause, partly out of sympathy, but also because of the unequal terms that the Anglo-Iranian oil company was getting, which, you know, Mohammad Mossadegh and the Tudor Party and student protesting we talked about in the last episode at right. the University of Tehran, they're dropping leaflets. People are becoming more and more aware and, and angrier and angrier. And we know, like, we talked about this in the earlier episodes, mm -hmm. people were angry, angry about concessions to foreign companies. This had been going on for 50 years uh, in Iran, and it's, yeah. it, it, you know, goes through periods of flare-ups then the, the, the descent gets crushed and then it flares up again and the descent gets crushed. But it's flaring up again in the late 1940s. In 1947, for example, the company reported an after-tax pro profit of £40 million. That's good, right? And That's gave good. Iran just £7 million. That's not good, Which is, right? a, you know, 8%, let's say. Yeah. To make matters worse, right? It ne the, the company never complied with their commitment that they made in 1933 when they renegotiated with Daddy Shah. Right. They said they promised they were going to give laborers better pay. They were going to give them more chance for advancement. They were going to build schools and hospitals and roads and telephone systems in Abadan. Oh yeah, you have to. And around the country with the money that they were yeah. making out of this, they never did that. Yeah, they they agreed to it, but they never <laughs> delivered. They kept making excuses. Yeah. And then in 1949, the 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 new director of Iran's Petroleum Institute was Farmer Farmer's kid, Farmer Farmian, <laughs> the guy who brought Norman Schwarzkopf over to build a right. secret police force. 
Exactly. And he is appalled by what he finds when he, he, he goes through the books of Abadan. This is what he said at the time. All right. Wages of 50 cents a day. There's no vacation pay, no sick leave, no disability compensation. The workers lived in a shanty town called Kargazabad or Paper City Ooh. without running water or electricity, let alone such luxuries as ice boxes or fans. In winter, the earth flooded and became a flat, perspiring lake. The mud in town was knee deep and canoes ran alongside the roadways for transport. When the rain subsided, clouds of nipping, small-winged flies rose from the stagnant waters to fill the nostrils, collecting in black mounds along the rims of cooking pots and jamming the fans at the refinery with an unctuous glue. Mm. Summer was worse. It descended suddenly without a hint of spring. The heat was torrid, the worst I've ever known, sticky and unrelenting, while the wind and sandstorms whipped off the desert hot as a blower. The dwellings of Kagazabad, cobbled from rusted oil drums hammered flat, turned into sweltering ovens. In every crevice hung the foul, sulfurous stench of burning oil, a pungent reminder that every day 20,000 barrels or 1 million tonnes a year were being consumed indiscriminately for the functioning of the refinery, and AIOC never paid the government a cent for it. Mm-hmm. To the management of AIOC in, the pressed, in their pressed ecru shirts and air-conditioned offices, yeah. the workers were faceless drones. In the British section of Abadan, there were lawns, rose beds, tennis courts, swimming pools, and clubs. Movie stars. In Kagazabad, Kagazabad, there was nothing, not a tea shop, not a bath, not a single tree. The tiled reflecting pool and shaded central square that were part of every Iranian town, no matter how poor or dry, were missing here. The mm. unpaved alleyways were emporiums for rats. The man in the grocery store sold his wares while sitting in a barrel of water to avoid the heat. Only the shriveled mud brick mosque in the old quarter offered hope in the form of divine redemption. Damn. So, yeah. It's really brutal yeah. slum land that the British are continuing to run. They're taking millions and millions and millions of pounds out of there mm. and giving. Yeah next to nothing back. Now, you might yeah. say, well, Iran was getting 7 million pounds a year out of that. Why yeah. weren't they why wasn't the Shah, why wasn't the government spending money on improving the lives of the workers there? But it was part of the agreement that the British exactly. had made. The British yes. were supposed to do that as part of their agreement and yeah. from 1933 onwards. Here we are in the late 1940s, they still haven't done anything still about it. Now, again, and I, I don't like to defend the British, but they were only making, on average, $36 million a year. And that doesn't go as far as it might sound, uh, just to let you know. But no, but you're absolutely right. They'd made this promise. They were supposed to do all these things. They're not. The people can see this. And even though they are, their anger is not so much slowly building. It's been building for a very long time, but it is getting out of hand. But thank God, and, and tell me if I'm getting this right, there was a new, was it a new ambassador that was sent in, Sir William Fraser? 
Was he an ambassador or was he in charge of the Anglo-Persian company? I think he was an ambassador. No, he was the chairman he's of the, chairman. the AIOC. Oh, thank you. Thank God he he's there uh, to save the day. So they've got all these ideas. The The Iranians have got all these ideas. They want to be able to talk and discuss. We need a, a starting point. You'll give a little bit. We'll give a little bit. We'll get all this worked out. Everything will be fine. Fraser says, fuck you. He rejects all their reforms. But you have to remember his point of view is and I'm sure he's been told from on high, this is how the British Empire became the British Empire, and this is how we keep the British Empire. We take from the poor, we bring it back home, we spend it on ourselves, we're happy. I don't see how you don't get but that. But that's what's how, the problem here? What's the problem? I've actually got a, a <laughs> clip here of Sir William Fraser talking about these negotiations. Yeah, please. Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. I know it's been over a decade, but we're not there yet. Just not yet. Not yet. Yeah, like we're, this is what Britain does. Yeah, this is what all colonial yeah. powers do. They rape this and pillage M-O. for their own benefit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry. The raping and the pillaging, this is what we've always done. We're not yeah. going to change it now. It works. Now, it works. More than half of Anglo-Iranians' profits went directly to the British government. Damn which right. owned 51% of the shares. Damn right. On top of that, the company right. paid millions of pounds each year in taxes and yeah. also supplied the Royal Navy with all of the oil it needed at a fraction of market price. Yes. Foreign Secretary of the UK at the time was Ernie Bevan, right. supposedly a lefty. You know, supposedly. What's his face? Yeah. Churchill and the Conservatives were gone at this point. Right. It's Ernest Bevan and his Prime Minister, what was his name, the Prime Minister Attlee. at the time? Attlee? Attlee, thank you. Yeah, yeah. They're supposedly lefties, right. but they're saying, no, fuck all y'all, <laughs> we're not doing this. Ernie Bevan said that without oil from Iran, there would be no hope of our being able to achieve the standard of living at which we are aiming in Great Britain. Now, yeah, you've got to remember... Right. Yes. In terms of context for all of this, context right. for all of this. Yes. Britain, like most countries in Europe, had just been through World War One, the Great Depression, World War Two, pretty much back to back. Yeah. Bombed. They've been they've been bombed. They've destroyed economically. Mm-hmm. And they were then forced to dismantle the British Empire after World yes. War Two, forced by the US. That was oh, yeah. part of the Atlantic Charter that, uh-huh. that Churchill agreed to with FDR in return for loans from the US, they were going to dismantle their empire because the US wanted access to their economic block. I had this discussion with one of our bullshit filter listeners, actually one of our Israeli bullshit filter listeners. So I did we we did this big show last week on right. Israel and Gaza. Um, one of our Israeli listeners contacted me and, and, and said he enjoyed the show and we, we were both talking about what's going on. And, um, you know, I've been had making the point to people in the last couple of weeks that, you know, what we what we call terrorism, today when you use the word terrorism, yeah, it, it, it sort of has this connotation of extreme evil, like it's the most evil thing you can do. Right. But I point out, you know who else committed the terrorism is basically deliberately attacking civilians in order to create terror in the civilian population in the hope that the civilians will the, the ones that survive 
will right. then force a change of government policy. Yeah. You know who else deliberately attacked civilians? Um, little guy by the name of Nelson Mandela, who was right. on the United States' terrorist list until 2008, oh, by wow. which time he'd already won the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. And the U.S. Presidential Medal of Freedom and the Soviet <laughs> Union's Lenin Peace Prize when they were still around. Yeah. Because he was a terrorist. And, yeah. uh, you know, I went back and and pulled up his memoirs, which I read decades ago uh, when I met him. You know, I met Nelson Mandela in oh, cool. 2000, around two, year 2000. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, he said to me at the time, Cameron, my friend, <laughs> If anyone ever says anything to you about terrorism, remember me. You know, you go through his book, and when he joined the ANC and, and started becoming a rebel against apartheid, mm -hmm. he was a big fan of Satyagraha, Gandhi's uh, passive, nonviolent approach to revolution. Right. But he realized over the years that two things. Number one, that wasn't going to work in South Africa. Right. And two... It didn't work for Gandhi. I had to point this out. Why are you sending me balloons? I'm not. Motherfucker? You're not? I haven't. Somebody's I haven't sending me balloons. Oh, I haven't touched a thing. I, I, I must be what happens when I say terrorism. I just get balloons <laughs> pop up on my Zoom screen. <laughs> You've won the terrorist prize. Yay. Oh, hey, I got more you balloons. You did it Look again. That. that is not me. Is I, you know I don't know tech. I don't have the ability to send you balloons, even if I knew terrorism? I Terrorism? See if it Terrorism? works for a third time. Yeah. Terrorist balloons. Hey. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> the fuck is going on? I... Um, the CIA has hacked my Zoom call. They're sending me. I knew it. Warning. It's only a matter of time. warning balloon. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right? I, I was putting this out to an Israeli Bushafilla listener. The view that we have in the West, which is, mm -hmm. I believe, been deliberately engineered, is that. Gandhi's nonviolent approach won, and therefore you should always take a nonviolent approach to revolution because it worked for Gandhi. Yeah, yeah. But it yeah. didn't work for Gandhi. The reason right. the United Kingdom pulled out of India had nothing to do with Gandhi. It was the Atlantic Charter. It happened in the Kicked late in. 40s after World War II when yeah. the U.S. were forcing them to pull out of India, Palestine, you know, all of their domains around the world. Number one, right. they couldn't afford it. After World War That's II, they were ex exactly. broke. They couldn't afford yeah. to maintain the empire. Yeah, the right. empire was bringing in money, but they had to spend money to make the money. Yeah, and bad be, But they had already agreed with the U.S. that – uh, uh, you know, in return for their support in World War II, which was an existential crisis, yeah. without the support of the US, Hitler would have probably won, and there would be, you know, they'd all be seg heiling in London. <laughs> um, they had to dismantle their empire. You know, we we've talked about how Churchill was like absolutely uh, bereft where yes. after those meetings with FDR that the the empire was going to die on his watch. Yeah. He was um, imperialist. They were forced to 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 bring to to collapse this. So right. um the, you know had nothing to do with Gandhi really. Nonviolence 
rarely yeah. works. Maybe you can say the Velvet Revolution, um, it right. worked. But even in that case, the Soviet Union um, was falling apart uh, by that stage, and Gorbachev knew that you know the, it, its days were numbers. So even right. then, I don't really think it. But we've been taught in the West, oh no, you shouldn't be violent. Oh, by the yeah. way, you know who else deliberately attacks civilians? Uh, the that? United States and the British during yeah. World War II. They deliberately attacked civilian populations, carpet bombed civilian populations oh, yeah. in Germany and Japan, and then dropped nuclear bombs on civilian populations in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. And none of none of the leaders of the US or the UK were brought up on human rights charges. You know, they were all celebrated. There were they medals. There were yeah. ticker tape parades, right? Yeah. They targeted civilian populations and justified it by saying, this is what we need to do to win the war. So right. attacking civilians is called terrorism when other people do it. Sounds right. When we do it, it's justified because we need to win the war against the bad guys, right? right. And we're freedom-loving peoples, so we have to. Yeah. That's how much it means to us. And, you know, as I've pointed out to many people over the last week or so, terrorism tends to be what you do when it's a last resort. When, yes. when nothing else works, and when you're a small, raggedy force going up against a much superior military force that's much yeah. better funded like Castro I mean Castro didn't do terrorism though but um you know uh, Ho Chi Minh and right. the Viet Cong going up the the going against the Americans or going against the French a much superior military force yeah. you cannot go head to head in you a classical military toe-to-toe. Yeah, -to -toe. You just can't do that because you don't right. have the wherewithal to do that. So your alternative is terrorism. That's what Nelson Mandela lines. decided in the ANC. Yeah. We can't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with uh, the white government of South Africa. They're far too powerful. And, by the yes. way, supported by the United States right up until the very end. We can't do it. Reagan supported uh, the apartheid government in South Africa right up until almost the end, you know, until it just mm -hmm. became untenable. Right. So did the Australian government. So did many, you know, the British, et cetera, et cetera. Anywho. Yeah. Uh, we'll have to do uh, a show about that at some point. And, you know, it's one of the, and, yeah. and it was Cold War rationale, the reason the US supported the apartheid government in South Africa because they were anti-communist. You know, it's like, yeah. well, you know, yeah. you yeah. know, they're on our side. They're far right, yeah. uh, white supremacist party, but they're yeah. on our side. So are they you know, perfect? Are they killers? Yes, but they kill the right people for the right reasons. God yes. bless them. Is, is yes. all I can say. Yeah. <laughs> all right, back to Iran. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's shit. It, it's shit, and everybody knows about it. And the conservatives, again, the, like you were saying, the British conservatives are the, really the ones that are in charge. I'm, I'm still trying to get over what you just said a minute ago. The amount of money, the millions of dollars, year in and year out, leaving Iran, or I guess I should say, leaving Iran's soil and heading directly to whatever bank in London. I mean, that is how you build an empire. But again, these people can see that and they are pissed and they are getting desperate to the point where the Majlis feel more supported by the people than they've probably ever been before. And so maybe they're starting to get a little more courageous than usual. Well, you know what the money was doing? No, it, tell me. Um, 
it I ran. It ran <laughs> so, it far, so far, away. far away. Yeah, nailed no, it. The point I, I, I just remembered the point I was going on about yeah. the dismantling of the British Empire was right. because they were forced to dismantle the empire and they needed cash. But yes. like, okay, they've been through World War One, the Great Depression, World War Two. Now they've been forced to dismantle their quite profitable economic block around the world. They mm-hmm. needed cash. Now, this Iran thing, technically not part of the British Empire. They're like, whoa, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa. Yeah. There's no British flag. No, There's no, no, no. Iranian rise. Heaven forbid. Here. Yeah. We have We're a advising. contract. We yes. have a contract. They have it's their own business. government, their yes. own shah, their own prime minister. Did we did we pull some strings? <laughs> did we threaten <laughs> them with gunboat <laughs> diplomacy? Yes. But, but that, that was, was yeah then. during World War II. That was yeah. 1941, right? Now, this yeah. is their own thing. But they this needed is... that cash. They weren't going to give in to a bunch of dirty Arabs. So Right. Thank you. Yes. In 1949, assassination attempt, the crushing of the Tudor. Yeah. Even after all that, the Marjlis puts forward a bill, a group of them do, to put put forward a bill to revoke the British oil concession. Oh. Now, pointing this out, because this is before Mossadegh's in power here, right? Yes. Um, Yes. That, I mean, he's probably part of the movement here, but it's not Mm -hmm. him as prime minister, which is, you know, you get justification, particularly from Americans and from British people sometimes when you talk about this issue in Operation Ajax, it's that, well, he was trying, you know, Mossadegh was trying to nationalise the oil interest and that's why a deal. They, yeah. they needed to take him out. It wasn't him. I mean, no. he was just one guy. There was this big movement to revoke it before he was in power. Right. This combined with the riots a few years earlier in Abadan, get the British to take action. So Sir William Fraser, the chairman of the AIOC, uh, flies in, <laughs> offers to make some changes to the original concession, a little bit more yeah. money, a little bit yeah. less land that they will drill on. They're going to train right. more Iranians for administrative positions, stuff that they'd agreed to before and hadn't actually delivered. Exactly. Because um, there's no way he's fucking delivering it. But <laughs> they're not going to allow the government to audit the company's books Right. They're not going to allow the government to have any greater say in the management of the company. Take it yeah. or leave it, he said. Double fingers. Right. I'm out in 5,000. <laughs> and he flew home, refusing to negotiate. The, the, right. the foreign minister, the head of the treasury, the finance minister, said to him at the time, okay, we accept your opening position. Allow us to retort. He goes, yeah. fuck your retort. Yeah, and he right. goes back home to London. Do you, do you smell that? That's the fumes from my plane, my personal private plane. I'm gone. And yeah, this is called and the supplemental by, agreement. Yeah, by oil, oil. which I'm taking free. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, which we get at a steep discount. But yeah, this is the supplemental agreement. It's not going to be agreed to. And you said this, and, and I don't think I appreciated this fully. Uh, when I read this, except for a couple of episodes ago, you were explaining um, with your knowledge gained by working with Tony about if you're in control of the books, you can move some numbers around and you can make your, I'm not sure the exact terms here, your net profit or profit after all expenses are paid. You can make that look pretty fucking small. And you know the the British are doing that. They're masters at this. And now that when, so when they say, I'll give you this, this, and this, however, you will never, ever, ever be allowed to audit the books 
then gives him the middle finger, then jumps on his personal private plane and flies back home. So what should have been a back and forth and negotiating, let's work it out. Everybody's a little happier. Kumbaya. It turns into, well, fuck. They, they've drawn, the British have drawn a line in the sand. What are the, uh, the uh, modulists going to do now? Yeah, it's what I've referred to in the past as Hollywood accounting, right? So <laughs> you know, if, if you're a, a director or a big star and you get net points in the film, it means you're going to oh, they promise yeah. you a percentage of the net profit after all the costs have been taken out. Right. You know, in, uh, have, I, have I talked about this? I think I have talked about this, about Tony's uh, view of this and um, Charlie Munger's view of this. So... When, when in QAV, when we're analyzing the financials of a company, we don't mm-hmm. look at the profit. A, right. a lot of a lot of uh, investors look at the PE ratio, price to oh, earnings right. ratio. Earnings is, you know, there's a lot involved, but it's usually your EBIT or EBITDA, EBITDA, everything before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. Or mm-hmm. it's NPAT, net profit after tax, you know, is uh, two different ways of looking at it. So people look at the PE, but Tony says, yeah, but profit can be manipulated. Earnings can be manipulated. Right. If companies are trying to push it up or push it down, they can do both for, for a whole variety of accounting and valuation and, and do. reasons. Yeah. And do. Yeah. Uh, so we look at cash flow. We look at a price to cash flow ratio. What's the the price of the stock versus the top line? How much money it's actually making? Mm-hmm. And we ignore what it's doing with that to some extent. We 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 look at that in different areas. But Tony right. thinks that top line cash flow is a much better way because that's harder to fuck with. It's harder to uh, manipulate the top line cash flow, right? Which is basically revenue. It's basically sales. What what do your sales look like? What does your revenue look like? Gotcha. In Hollywood, famously, if you're a director or or you're an actor and they promise you net points, it's net profit after costs, mm-hmm. and they can manipulate the fuck out of that, and they do. And Hollywood learnt it from the British because that's right. what the British are doing here. The Foreign so, Office taught them. Yes, yes. Yes. The finance minister was furious when Fraser gave him the double finger and jumped on his Iranian petroleum-fueled plane and flew back home. Right. So he had commissioned a French constitutional law professor to document the accounting tricks that the British were using to cheat Iran out of money. He produced a 50-page report, which the finance minister, under the you know pro-British prime minister and the, the British-controlled Shah, Right. Slaps it down on the table and says that this is how the British are cheating us out of money. Right. One cabinet member demanded that the British split the profits 50-50, the same as the US were doing with Iraq. Mm -hmm. After the British had discovered oil in Iran, the Americans had helped discover oil in Iraq, and they were getting 50 cents on the dollar of that and giving 50 cents back to yeah, uh, Iraq. That's more fair. Yeah, yeah. The cabinet member said if Britain refused, they should nationalize the oil oh. industry and extract oh. the crude themselves. Oh, shit. That's a dagger right into the heart of what's left of the British Empire. Because you're right, they, they absolutely need this infusion of funds each and every year. But 
the Marjley's term was expiring, elections right. were coming up, and yes. rather than vote against it and face the wrath of the Shah, Secret everyone's police. heard of the wrath of Khan. Right. Um, this is the wrath of <laughs> Shah. Right? No one ever says the wrath of Ray. Not once. Not one goddamn time. It's a it's a different show. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Let's see if I have that clip. I used to have that clip. Where's that God! clip? So they knew if they voted against it, they'd upset the Shah, and they just decided to filibuster the whole thing. Yeah, and run ra- out yeah, the clock on their term, yeah. leave it as a problem <laughs> for the next parliament. Right. So the Shah wants the Majlis to agree to this new deal that the AIOC yeah. has put forward. The right. Majlis are dead against it. Uh, they know that the British are ripping them off, but yeah. They don't want to upset the Shah. They don't want to upset the British because yeah. they know there are consequences. Like some members oh. of the Majlis want to tell the British to go fuck themselves. <laughs> the Shah wants them to just approve the agreement. <clears throat> right. But the, the term of the Majlis is coming up for expiration. There's going to be new elections. And enough members of the Majlis decide, you know what? You yeah. cannot lose if you do not play. So they That's just fully buster the vote. They run out the clock on their term and leave it as a problem for the next parliament. Yeah. Now, the Shah's not impressed, and he uses bribery and electoral fraud in the next elections to make sure that the cabinet is stacked in his favour. Is he being advised to do this by the British and the AIOC and Norman Schwarzkopf? Probably. Yes. But it doesn't really work. Well, when you're going to break the law, and and you've told me this countless times, but you won't ever let me record it, I don't know why, when you're going to break the law, when you know, when you know you're going to break the law, try to do it on the download, try not to make it obvious. I don't think the Sean did a very good job that people find out about this. They explode in protests. There are people gathering in the streets of the major cities. And in Tehran, it was actually the worst. The most number of people came together protesting, marching in the street. They're tired of all this stuff. They want democracy. Um, why was it the worst in Tehran? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because this guy named Mossadegh, who a couple of uh, elections ago, or maybe even the last election, got more votes than anybody in history. In this election, he did not win. So either almost everybody in that area changed their mind or somebody fudged with the numbers. I think the people are going with the latter and they are, Mossadegh's pissed too, but also tens of thousands of people across the country are very upset. Mossadegh issues a statement inviting everyone who believed the elections <laughs> were uh, corrupted to gather hey, in front of his home. Come to my house. Sorry, sorry. Thousands of people turn up and he leads yes. them through the streets to the royal palace. They get there. He turns to the crowd, delivers a fiery speech, declares that yeah. he would not move until yes. the Shah agreed to hold new and fair elections. And he stays there for three days and three nights. Like Jesus. Along along <laughs> with several other uh, politicians. And finally, the Shah, who's about to 
make a very important trip to the United States. Yes. Is anxious to avoid embarrassment in the United States agrees to give in, cancels the results of the election. Oh, wow. Agrees to hold new elections. Yes, yes. And then he flies to the United States. Now, why was he going to the United States, Ray? As our Uh, token American on this show, why was he going to the United States? Well, first of all, this token American does not appreciate the attitude or the tone uh, of that question. He was simply going there because he admired American culture. He he certainly loved the 1940s radio programs that, he, that, that were on at the time. Wait, I'm being told, no, I got that completely fucking wrong. He was going to go ask for weapons, ammunition, and money to beef up his army, not to fight the British, not to kick them out of the country, but he just needed more military muscle because that was really the only power he had, and his people are getting a little too uppity, and he needs more men and guns to slap them down. Please, sir, can I have a tank? Is basically why he's going there. Yeah. Now, uh, of course, this is in the era of the Marshall Plan. Yes. The Americans are handing out money, hand over fist. Yeah, baby. the Cold War uh, thing. Well, as we know, uh, they weren't actually handing out money. They were uh, providing basically lines of credit to countries, mostly in Western Europe. If you want to access American goods and services to rebuild your country, we will make that available to you. For a price. Now, how much money did Iran get out of the Marshall Plan, Ray? Oh, uh, I I don't have that off the top of my head. Zero? I, I have no idea. How how much do they get? Uh yeah, no, none, basically. <laughs> they weren't getting any access to uh <laughs> Marshall Plan money. No, but they just they you know they weren't yeah. like okay, so let me Did explain not, the right. Let me Did explain they not the, fill point out the right the Marshall, forms. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> just right. checking, just checking. Let, let me explain the point of the Marshall Plan for you, which was uh, if you're at risk right. of becoming a communist country because there's a the sizable communist movement in your country. Right. Plus devastation, right? Uh, we, we are going to get involved to try and buy the elections in your country moving forward to make exactly. sure that it's rightest parties that win your elections and that right. uh, you you crush any socialist slash communist slash leftist movement in your country yeah. in return for getting the money. Iran <clears throat> yeah. uh, was already under the control of the British. <laughs> right. So it was the British's problem, England's problem, the United Kingdom's problem, not our problem. Yeah, uh, but Sonny Jim. the Shah the Shah sees this money being handed out. And he's like, "What the fuck am oh. I chopped liver?" So he flies there. He said, "We just had Norman Schwarzkopf <laughs> come over and build my secret police. Doesn't that mean that we're uh, you know Honorary we should get member? some money for this? Yeah, yeah. well yeah. we we have to pay for our own defense. Like what the fuck is that? <laughs> so he goes to the U.S. in 1949 to try and tap into this sweet sweet American. <laughs> Gravy train. He meets with Truman, Atchison, 
all of these guys to convince yes. them, hey, w- we could fall to communism as well. We had the Tudor party, you know, we nearly lost Azerbaijan. Right. We need support as well. But yes. Truman and Atchison, Dean Atchison and these guys, right. they try and convince him that the yeah. only way to prevent Iran from falling to communism was through social reforms, not military power. Right. Now, this was not the same conversation they were having in Western Europe, really. Do you need to go right. tell your family to shut the fuck up again or, you know, you're going to send in Cam? No, is, you played that card already and it didn't work? I, it, it didn't take. Uh, no, Kiki's coughing, so... Uh, Tell I'll him to just... cough quiet. Die quietly. So if you're gonna die, Cam says, can you do it quietly? Quietly. Anyway, yeah. please continue. So yeah, so uh, there's a different conversation in that neck of the woods. Yeah. So they're not uh, giving him the same conversation. Like the conversation in Europe that they're having is, you need to crush communism. And if you want money from us, you need to do it. It will help you do it, but you need to crush communism. In Iran, they're saying, no, military strength is not the way to do it. You need to do it by being a nice guy and social reforms. Now, why do you think they're having a different conversation with the Shah, with Kid Shah, than they're having with the leaders of Western Europe? Well, I, if I had to guess, I would guess that if, if uh, the Shah or Iran in general got weapons, I mean, is there a chance that some of them would end up eventually being used against the British, America's ally? I don't know. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's a different problem from the American perspective. If you're in Eastern Europe or you're in Europe and you're worried about the Soviets coming, uh, that's a threat. But the, but the Soviets are already in, excuse me, the British are already in Iran. So so it's, it's apples and oranges. But the idea of Truman going, no, you don't need weapons. You need love. You need you need to, to, to let pregnant women take time off. You need to get people minimum pay. You need to you need to take care of the people. And that way they won't switch over to communism. And you've got to imagine the Shah going, who would the fuck say anything about communism? I'm not worried about communism. And so there was literally two ships passing in the night in the same conversation. They've got nothing to do with each other. The Shah doesn't want to hear about peace, love, and understanding. And he quickly gets bored when Truman just waxes on and on about taking care of the people under your charge. Yes. So um, I think what this really has to do with is the fact that what's in it for me? (laughs) How much money... Right. Am I getting out of your oil? Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, fuck all. Oh, fuck all. Fuck all. Okay. Yeah, fuck all. So that's what you're getting from me. Yeah. Oh. Why? Why yeah. do I want to defend your rule when I'm right. not getting anything? Like, yeah, yeah Schwarzkopf big, got a gig out of it, but yeah, you know, my, really, my beak's not getting wet. Where's yeah? Where's yeah. my little yeah, my little taste? Nothing. So that's what what's, you get. What's, what's in it for me? What have what you done asking. for me lately? Lately, exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, where is my interest, Mitty? Are you really at risk of being taken over by communists? Well, no, you've already crushed the Tudor party with the support of the British and Norman yeah. Schwarzkopf. Norman yeah. Schwarzkopf. That's true. 
Yeah. But really, like, yeah. what's what's in it for me if I support yeah. you in this? What what are you going to give me? Right. This is the conversation they're having. Now, they point to China as an example. They yeah. say, look, Chiang Kai-shek had the stronger military, uh, wink, wink, supported by us <laughs> to the hill, and no. he lost because well, he yes. didn't. He didn't, you know, offer the same sort of reforms that the communists did. Uh, by the way, hold on, is that we're saying that the communists are the good guys in the yeah, Chinese you, Civil War? Good uh, God, no, 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 no. no we're not. A, we're not saying that. We're, not we're saying, saying the people. The people liked what the communists. Oh, hold on, shit. That's still the wrong message. <laughs> Um, Communism okay, scratch bad. that. Okay, scratch, scratch that. that. We'll get back yeah. to you on the China yeah. example. Well, I'm not sure why we brought that up. We're, that was yeah, a really... Dean, Dick. Yeah. Yeah. Dean, shut up, Dean. Dean. <laughs> Fucking told you before, Dean. Think before you speak. It's not hard. Don't speak at all. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But um, so, so nothing much came of this, I'm assuming. Yes. No, he basically did not get what he wanted out of the US. I've got um I've got uh, an article here. Mm-hmm. Got a few articles from the New York Times. Um trying to just bring up the link. It's probably going to ask me to log in. No, good. Sunday, November 13th, 1949. Right. Bear with me. Iran's Shah to ask assistance in U.S. The Shah of Iran due to arrive here Wednesday as the first Oriental monarch to make a state visit to the United States will use his talks with the United States officials to express his country's need for greater military and economic assistance, it was indicated today. Mohammad Riza Pahlavi, the young ruler who was 30 years old on October 26, is expected to make a whirlwind tour of the United States comparable to that recently completed by another distinguished visitor from the East, Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru. But there will be times when his objective, like that of the Indian Prime Minister, will be strictly business. Although State Department officials are inclined to stress the goodwill aspects of the Shah's visit, Iranian diplomatic representatives do not hesitate to call attention to their country's military and economic condition. They declare that its defences need strengthening and its economy needs developing, and the Shah is likely to bring this out in his conversations with Secretary of State Dean Acheson and others. Iran Mm -hmm. already shares, to a minor degree, in the $1.3 billion assistance program with an unspecified portion of $27.6 million that is earmarked also for career in the Philippines. This is considered by Iranians, however, to fall far short of the total necessary to bring their armed forces to peak efficiency. Nestled yeah. up against the southern border of the Soviet Union, Iran is also considered by the United States to be an important link in the chain of non-communist countries that is part of the United States strategy. Iran shares with Turkey the, the uneasy position of being directly in line of any possible Soviet expansion southward. Right. So they're apparently getting a tiny bit of money. They don't show up in the list of the main recipients of the yeah. Marshall Plan, but apparently they were down for a shared component of $27.6 million shared with Korea and Philippines out of, well, what ended up being right. $13 billion. But at this stage, $1.3 billion uh, is what was being declared. They ended up getting two-tenths of fuck all. <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. President Truman's point four pro four point no point four. I think it should be point four program for economic development, in which recipient countries would share costs with members and specialized agencies of the United Nations, would be a source for both financial and technical help. Anyway, yes. bottom line is he rocks up and he goes home <laughs> empty-handed at the Rockless. end of the day. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the US basically says, you know what? You go home and reform your country, not our problem. We're not going right. to give you any more money for uh, yeah. military or economic assistance. Why would we support a British puppet? Basically, yeah. is the yeah. uh, when we're not getting any benefit out of your oil. I'm sure the backroom negotiations were not to be reported in the New York Times. Uh, you, right. you, you, you cut us in on the oil action, yeah, and we'll see what we can do. Go yeah. home until then, yeah, yeah, Fuck go off. home, figure out what you can do. You scratch <laughs> my back, yeah. I want you to, we might go. scratch your back. I want you to go home. And write a figure on a napkin, and then slide mm. it across the table to me. Then I'll know what I'm. I'll, then I'll know if you're serious or not. But the point is, the Shah wanted money so he could go home and modernize and organize his military. Well, guess what? While he was gone, there was some organization in Iran, but it was his political opponents. Remember the last election, the rigged one? Well, Mossadegh and about 20 other people, after their sit-in on the lawn in the palace, got together and they said, you know, we had some momentum going here. We've got a victory. I know. Let's take it to the next level. We're going to form a new coalition of uh, political parties, trade unions, civil groups, and anybody else who wants to join, anybody who wants democracy, anybody who wants to limit the power of the foreigners in Iran. Come one, come all. It's going to be a big tent party, and they start moving on this, and they're getting organized, and that's the last thing the Shah needs, but that's what Mossadegh and others are doing. They created, Mossadegh had created a new political party, the National Front. Mossadegh is its leader. He's 67 yeah. He now has what he's always wanted, political power. Yes. Coincidentally, right. uh, the Shah returns back and, according to the New York Times, reforms in Iran demanded by Shah, not oh. from the Shah, <laughs> from by Shah. the parliament, demanded by <laughs> Shah. Parliament who's, told who's that status... This? That status Sorry. of masses must be raised, oil wages under inquiry. The Shah opened the first session of the Iranian Senate and the 16th session of the House of Deputies or Majlis this morning with a warning mm -hmm. that the time for internal bickering was over and that there was a program to accomplish a change in the status of the Iranian masses. The right. Shah told the assembled senators and deputies that the issues of food, clothing and shelter, health and education for all. He said yeah. his government would present bills to lower the cost of living. A seven-year plan, seven plan will be the basis of a projected series of social reforms, the Shah declared, and bribery and corruption will be rooted out and Damn social right. justice promoted. And yes. now Iran's natural resources will be exploited, the Shah added, and the product of those resources fairly distributed according to the principle of social justice for the benefit of the toiler and the farmer so that our country may take its place among the progressive nations. 
The Shah defined Iran's foreign policy as friendship and peace with all her neighbours and loyalty to the Atlantic Charter. Yesterday, he named 28 of the 30 senators appointed by the Crown. The remaining 30 had been chosen in last year's election. Yes. So he goes to Truman. Truman says you've got to <laughs> create social reform. Right. And he's going to weed out corruption just after he had been forced to nullify the elect- <laughs> the corrupt elections that he had corrupted. Well, and a new political party run by Mohammed Mossadegh is yeah. uh, coming to the fore. My favorite thing is that that was a newspaper article. If there had been video at the time while the Shah is saying this, you can just picture Mossadegh, even though he's in his mid-60s, going, what, what, am I being punked right now? Is this guy fucking with me? Is he fucking with me? Those are our demands. Those are our words. Bitch, you know, whatever. But it's in the newspaper. It must be true. The Shah seems to be giving Truman and the Iranian people what they want. It's a giant cart full of bullshit, but it looks good in the press. Yes, and this is how it's being presented to the Americans in the New York Times. As exactly. He is pushing yes. for reforms, not uh, Mohammed yes. Mossadegh. Oh. But so they have these new elections. Seven members of the National Front were elected, including Mossadegh. But remember, the Shah now has the authority to choose the prime minister. Now, in 1950, again, with the under the command of the British, he tries to appoint one patsy after another, but they're all unwilling to put forward the new oil concession agreement to a vote, the one that the British are trying to push through. Yeah, they'll die if they put that forward. Excuse me. Fuck. <coughs> God damn. Sorry. Let me try that oh, again. It's not okay when so, uh, Kirk, uh, fucking Kiki <laughs> coughs, but now you're coughing into the microphone. It's it's <laughs> it's Kiki's fault. Uh, yeah, well, yeah they'll, they'll, they'll fucking die. I mean, if they put that together after all the protest, after everything we've talked about, if some member of the Majlis says, yes, yeah, so let's I agree to this or whatever, and then walks out on the street, his life isn't worth shit. So I don't blame them for not wanting to do this because they can read the writing on the wall just like everybody else. Yeah. So he keeps appointing these uh, prime ministers to do his bidding slash the British yeah. bidding. And one after another, they fail to do it and uh, quote unquote resign or are pushed out. New York Times, February 25th, 1950, Premier Mohammed Sayed resigned today and was immediately appointed by Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi to form a new cabinet. The Constitution right. provides that the cabinet resign immediately after the Marjolies convenes. He resigned January 11th, formed a new cabinet in a move believed at a, the adoption of a stronger economic policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, stronger meaning do what the British want. So... <laughs> Uh, he goes through a series of these guys, and none of them are willing to do yeah, no. the bidding. So the no. British sent someone to, quote-unquote, help. They In April, they send a new ambassador to Tehran, Sir Francis Shepard. Right. Now, he comes from uh, a long, successful career as British uh, ambassador in places run by a series of tyrants, El Salvador, Haiti, Peru, the Belgian Congo, the Dutch East Indies. He he understands uh, how to run a dictatorship. Yeah. If you've got a you know, colonial interest in the dictatorship, 
He <laughs> is uh, he, 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 he's the he's Britain's man when you get yes. he's a fixer run a colonial dictatorship. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He says, you know what your problem is? Is you're appointing civilians uh, as ah, don't prime do ministers. That. Yeah, don't, don't do don't, that. Don't, you got to get an army guy. We need a military guy. Right, as so we don't understand. Prime Minister. Damn yeah. right. Yeah. So yeah, so like you said, you know, for all this time, for decades, at the very least, they've been uh, appointing civilians. That was, I don't know if it was the law, but it was the tradition. And most people are very, you know, they take tradition very seriously. But this is breaking this. So they're like, no, we're going to bring in General Ali Razmara, the chief of the army staff. And he had previously worked with General Schwarzkopf. So this guy has got some experience. He's worked with the Americans. He's been loyal to the Shah. And he's seen, you know, occasionally you have to break some heads. So this is going to be their new guy who is going to do the will of the British. I, I, I mean the Shah. So they've got a guy. Yeah. We need a military guy. Now, this guy, Ali Razmara, mm-hmm. uh, chief of staff of the army, sort of one of Schwarzkopf's most trusted officers, as you said, uh, career soldier, oh, yeah. 47 years old, ruthless, cold-blooded, corrupt, <laughs> right. but talented. Uh, his hero was Daddy Shah. Uh, you know, <laughs> he kind of agreed with Daddy Shah that Iran needed a harsh tyrant at the yes. helm. For its own good. Yes. But unlike Daddy Shah, he was sophisticated, cosmopolitan, educated at a French military academy. Yeah. And aware of how important it was for Iran to placate the foreign powers that uh, were determining their future. And he rose to power, like the Reza Shah did himself, by sucking up to the British. Sucking never hurts. Wait a minute. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. He promised Mm -hmm. them that if they put him in charge, he would push through this new supplemental agreement to their concession, as it was called, the supplemental agreement. Right. Um, To the Russians, he also (laughs) promised freedom for the Tudor leaders that had been imprisoned by Kid Shah. The ones are still alive. To the Americans, he promised uh, support for yes. their anti-communist crusade in the Middle East. Sy- sympathetic ear. I understand. You come talk to me. If I get this position, I'll be your guy here. I totally get what you're going for. Trust me. Yeah. yeah. He's got all the bases covered. He knows the right things to say to all of the foreign powers that have an interest in Iran. Right. So he gets the job. The Marjolies meets at the end of June to debate his nomination no one's surprised when Mossadegh gets up and delivers a blistering speech, denouncing him as a tool of the foreign powers and a dictator mm. in the making. Mm. And also no one's surprised that after the speeches are over, Razmara is confirmed as yeah. the new prime minister by a comfortable margin. Yeah. He uses his power to help the campaigns of more than half the deputies that mm-hmm. uh, are, are getting confirmed. They repay their debts and do what he wants them to do. Right. So he takes power, convinced that destiny has chosen him <laughs> to lead Iran back to greatness. Like us. Mossadegh believed that destiny had chosen him to lead Iran to greatness. <laughs> Kid Shah believes that destiny has chosen him to lead Iran to greatness. Only one of the three can emerge 
victorious. <laughs> That's exactly what I wrote. Only one out of the three can be right. So we'll see what happens next time. buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. <laughs>